Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Alasha Kaufman, on what she believes are some major turning points in American church history. A standard way that God works in the world is this an expectation that part of its salvation would be a dramatic experience. A turning point in, in each individual life is, is one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that sort of the paradigm for Christianity? And that gets associated with the tradition known as evangelicalism. And many historians look back to the early 1700s and the, the, what they have designated the First Great Awakening as the beginning of that tradition, which was and remains particularly strong in the United States. Alesha Kaufman, next. American history has profoundly shaped and been shaped by Christianity. Baylor University history professor Dr. Alesha Kaufman tells the story of Christianity in the U.S. by focusing on 13 key events over four centuries in her new book, Turning Points in American Church History, How Pivotal Events Shaped a Nation and a Faith. Dr. Kaufman historian Mark Knoll used the turning points concept a number of years ago in one of his books, Why Do You Use It? As I understand it, many years ago, um, his book has been in print for over 25 years, he was set to give a series of lectures on church history, and he couldn't bring a lot of books or notes with him. And so he had really just an index card on which he wrote some dates as ways to jog his memory and ground these lectures in particular events of church history, um, giving enough enough depth to individual events that um his his audience could get some of the social context as well as some of the um, particular church structures or beliefs that were um, being contested at that point. And that's how his Turning Points book came about. And, and like I said, it's been in print for over 25 years. It gets used in a lot of classes and church contexts as well as for general readership. So it's just a way of, of covering a lot of ground without feeling like you have to say something about absolutely everything because then that just gets tedious. So when you say turning point, it's not necessarily where a transition occurs, or, or does it mean that? That that honestly was more difficult, I think, for my volume just doing American church history than for his doing a much longer sweep of, of church history. It's maybe hard to explain this for someone who hasn't had to teach um, both global histories and, and local histories, but with a global history or with a span of the hundreds and hundreds of years, you know you can't track everything. So you kind of pick one theme, one variable, and try to track that. And then you can get specific inflection points. As you're tracking one variable, this is sort of how how that goes up or down or sideways. Um, With a smaller time frame, American church history, 400 years of it is still pretty big, but I didn't have one variable to track. Um, there are different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. There are different denominational groups, and you, you can't really flatten that out to one line. So some of the events in my book would be turning points when something changed, um, like the um, churches, churches splitting over slavery before the Civil War. There's a very clear before and after there. A lot of mine, though, are... Um, launch points where a particular American religious tradition started, like the Azusa Street Revival of 1906, um, or sometimes they're just kind of convenient hooks to hang a lot of information on. 
Um, so yeah, that the, the turning point idea got a little bit complicated, but the format of each chapter focusing on one event, starting with hymn lyrics, ending with a prayer, talking about different people who were involved in that event. So you're not just getting um, abstract details, but you're getting down to the ground level. I copied the format of Noel's book more than maybe the exact turning points idea. Well, it's interesting, too, that um, it, it sounds like this this approach is, is particularly helpful for a look at American churches re- because America is a nation, as you said already, is a nation of many cultures. Christianity is a faith which is incarnated within cultures. And so, in, in one sense, this is a nation of not not that the primary doctrines are different, but a, a, a nation of many Christianities. Yes, yes, particularly if you're looking at um, the institutions, the groups of people. Um, if if someone is to talk about the American church, and you'll see that language on um, social media, or yeah. I always want to ask them, which one are you thinking of? <laughs> because almost no statement about the American church is equally true for all of them. <laughs> The book is Turning Points in American Church History, How Pivotal Events Shaped a Nation and a Faith. Well, Dr. Kaufman, just take just turning to uh, the, the book itself, uh, the, the first chapter, you talk about the old world order upended, uh, that is the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588, and uh, I mean, that's several decades before the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, so why, why would you start a look, or why do you start a look at American Christianity uh, at that point? It is, it is a bit of an unusual choice. Um, I've taught, in addition to teaching a lot of church history, I've taught a lot of U.S. history. Um, and I think it's important not to begin with English colonization, English language colonization, starting only in the Northeast. You can tell a certain kind of narrative about um, United States history and American identity that way, but... There were lots of Spanish and French and and other Europeans in lands that became the United States before that. It was not inevitable that this would be an English-speaking, English-dominated territory. There's all kinds of history that happened before that and in, in different regions. And so starting with the Spanish Armada was the analog to the way I start my U.S. history classes, we're going to back it up further. We're not going to start with the pilgrims. My current main survey class is U.S. and global perspective, and we start with Columbus. Ah. So the Span- what, what was the Spanish Armada? The Spanish Armada was the naval fleet. Um, this is part of battling for supremacy over the seas in the 16th century. Um Spain and Portugal were way out ahead of England in terms of traveling around the globe, establishing colonies, establishing trade routes. And there was this one sort of epic naval battle of the the English Navy versus the Spanish Armada, 1588. And it by no means ended Spanish dominance in the Americas or around the globe. Um, There was a time that the Pacific was called the Spanish Lake because the Spanish presence was so strong there. But um, I write that when the English won and when the English were sure that God had given them the victory, in part because there was a big windstorm that was involved, and they decided that the Bible verse about God blew and they were scattered applied to their naval victory, that God wanted them to have ascendance over the seas and over the Americas. And once they had that idea planted, that that dream, um, then they had even more energy to pursue it. Ah, okay. And then Roger Williams, uh, he was banished from Massachusetts in 1635. The, the issue was religious 
freedom. Of course, it's an it's a extremely important issue uh, today and continues to be uh, for Christians today. Uh, but uh, can you talk about maybe the, the, the genesis of the whole thing back then? Right. Roger Williams, um, founder of what we would know as the, the Baptist tradition, um, y- you have a couple of different ideas very different paradigms of religious freedom going on there in New England in the 17th century. Does religious freedom mean an individual freedom to believe or not believe pretty much whatever you want, as long as you're not disturbing other people? Or the the Puritan vision was more, they wanted freedom from England because they didn't think England was religiously strict enough, and they wanted to be free to have the kind of godly society that they thought God wanted, that they thought that God's covenant required. Um, so their freedom was more at the at the level of the whole colony, and it was um, corporate rather than individual. And so that, that collision is what gets Roger, that collision as well as very different ideas about how to relate to indigenous Native Americans. Did they, um, was it their land, or had God given the land to his English-speaking people? The Puritans mostly thought God had given the land to them and they could do whatever they wanted to do to um, convert or exterminate the indigenous population, whereas Roger Williams thought the land really belongs to the indigenous population. And of course, those ideas continue to this present day. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's another way that the turning point idea is is tricky because a lot of these um, intentions that are built into American religious history, yeah, they, they don't go away. I, I look back at maybe where the tension emerged, but um, I can't resolve it because <laughs> it never <laughs> stops being true. <laughs> well, well, the book is Turning Points in American Church History, How Pivotal Events Shaped a Nation and a Faith. And my guest is Dr. Lesha Kaufman. She's the author. And as you'll hear in my questions, Dr. Kaufman, I'm, sometimes I'm just going to have to, to skip over a particular point. And people that want to learn more, let them obviously get the book themselves and, and read it. But I, I wanted to ask, of course, what will be particularly interesting, I think, to, to a lot of our listeners is uh, the history of evangelicalism, of Bible-believing Christianity, if you will, in in the United States, and you you uh, put your finger on George uh, Whitfield, uh, and he sparked the first. Uh, well, actually, of course, God sparked it through him, but the first Great Awakening in 1740. And can you talk about that in terms of a turning point in American church history? Right. Um, the idea of revivalism um, is that a standard way that God works in the world is this an expectation that part of its salvation would be a dramatic experience. Um, a turning point in, in each individual life is, is one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that sort of the paradigm for um, Christianity? And that um, gets associated with the tradition known as evangelicalism. And many historians look back to the early 1700s and the, the what they have designated the First Great Awakening as the beginning of that tradition, which was and remains particularly strong in the United States. There was more resistance to it in the Church of England back in England. Um, it did not become as much of the norm and expectation in European countries, for example, as it did in the United States. In part, other historians have said because of the social conditions here, because we didn't have as much of an established political or landowning hierarchy. There was much more of a frontier idea. There was much more possibility for individual reinvention and participation in markets. Um, So those are some of the ideas that I'm dealing with in that chapter. And it's It's difficult but interesting because historians 
there are, there are battle royales within the historical community about what is meant by evangelicalism, what was going on with these revivals. Do we explain them with reference to specific Bible verses, or do we explain them with reference to economic conditions or racial and gender um, tensions? Like, there's just so much going on there that a book like mine, um, again, designed sort of for a teaching context. I'm not trying to pick a side in that. I'm not trying to make a particular historical argument. I'm kind of introducing students to this is how historians have have looked at this and thought about this. And here's some information so you can think alongside, start to do some of that historical thinking on your own. Well, tell us about the first African-American church founded at Silver Bluff, Bluff, South Carolina, 1773. I mean, so many years before the Civil War and this was going on. Right. And this was a chapter that a lot of this was very new to me. Um, I didn't have as much training in Black church history at all, but this was a topic that I wanted to cover. Um, and it it became a really interesting chapter because there's no Revolutionary War chapter exactly. The, the revolution comes up with reference to Whitfield, because that's a connection that some historians have made, the evangelical tradition and then um, the birth of democracy but with the the year 1773 as the founding of this first African American church at Silver Bluff, the experience of Black Americans in the Revolutionary period becomes foregrounded. And of course, that surfaces another one of these enduring tensions and ironies. This is a revolution fought for freedom while many people are enslaved and continue to be enslaved. And as as this chapter shows, many of the Black Americans, Black Christian Americans did not experience an increase in freedom. In fact, they had to flee because it was the British who were more in favor of the end of slavery and freedom for for Black citizens than it was the Americans. So these Black Christians had to flee to other British-held territories for their own safety. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of institutional as well as political history there, and and looking at that period from a very different angle than we might be used to. And then just kind of uh, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, where and you mentioned this earlier, but the Methodist Church, for example, split over the subject of slavery uh, in 1844. C- kind of just characteristic of uh, the division in the church over that issue. Where today, as we look back on it, we might wonder why would there be any division, but that was then. Yeah, John Wesley was against enslavement. Um, he he tried to have the Methodist tradition be um, solidly against enslavement, but particularly in what became the United States, it was so lucrative. It was so built into the social order. And there were fears as the Methodist church wanted to grow and evangelize. Well, white people will never convert to our tradition if we're going to make them give up their slaves. So we'd better just soft pedal that part. We we don't care what John Wesley, our founder, said about it. We don't care what our other theological commitments might say. This is so socially and economically entrenched, we're just not going to touch it. And, and you wonder the the uh, kind of just the illustration that, that there was a division over that um, slavery back then in within one denomination. Looking to the current day, there are divisions over numerous social issues. You wouldn't think there would be maybe over some of them, but but there are in various denominations or churches. Yes, most American denominations split over slavery. Um, most of them, the Catholic Church never did, the Episcopal Church never did exactly, but Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterians, many of them did. And while some of those um, divisions were subsequently healed, never perfectly, 
Southern Baptist Convention still is the old Southern slaveholding wing of that church. The, the Baptists, insofar as they ever were or could be unified based on their polity, um, never got over the slavery rupture. Hmm. I'm backing up now uh, just to ask you about the American Bible Society. It was founded in 1816, and I'm wondering, what, what makes that a turning point in American church history? Because obviously the American Bible Society was a, call it what you will, I mean, it wasn't a, a church per se. Right. Um, so church history as a discipline isn't just about congregations and denominations. Um, it's often about what you could think of as parachurch institutions, other explicitly religious institutions is sort of the, the basic okay. unit of analysis for the discipline of church history typically. And, and I try to explain that in the introduction, although it's a little... People who haven't been, as I have, going to the American Society of Church History Conference for 20 years, the language doesn't come as naturally, perhaps. Right. American Bible Society, this was an example of, I needed to put a dot on my timeline to talk about something that was big and important, but a little bit amorphous. Um, the, the real subject of that chapter is the so-called benevolent empire. That's another term used by historians retrospectively, just to talk about all these voluntary associations, explicitly Christian voluntary associations that were organizing people to combat slavery or to combat alcohol or to increase literacy or to try to improve conditions for people in prison or people with disabilities. It's a whole lot of things going on at once, but all together, um, it's important to American history in part because although it's it's difficult for us to imagine now, in the early 1800s, the federal government was tiny, whereas um, denominational and other Christian institutions were huge. Hmm. The money, the people on the ground, the buildings, you name it, it was more likely to be um, religious and voluntary rather than secular and, and government. And so, again, it's a really big amorphous thing, but very important to talk about as a way that American history was shaped by Christians and Christian institutions and a way that the past, that past was um, in some ways so different from our present. And in terms of that, um, a parachurch organization, today when we think of student missions, we think of, I think many people think of InterVarsity, Christian Fellowship and the Urbana Missions Conferences, which have been going on for a long time. But uh, back back in uh, 1886, you talk about the student volunteer uh, missions movement, which was launched. Uh, that, that's going to be news, I think, to most people. <laughs> Right. Missions, um, I could have talked about that with the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, ABCFM, that was launched back in 1810. That ran into the, the Benevolent Empire stuff. So this was, yeah. again, trying to put a dot on a timeline for a very big and sprawling story. But um, American foreign missions in particular in the later 1800s, it was just this burst of energy and money and people going abroad at the same time as the United States was establishing a bit of a global empire for itself. It never had an empire quite the way that the British Empire before or the Spanish before them, but there were a lot of American military ships and a lot of American commercial ventures going on at the same time. So this idea that there would be Americans going around the globe, um, encountering different people, leaving their mark on the world, that was there was a lot of energy around that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, so that that's why that appears here in the book. Okay. And then uh, Pentecostalism, uh, the Azusa Street Revival, 1906. Um, it, it's just fascinating that uh, obviously Pentecostalism has quite an influence in, in American church history today with the Foursquare Church and others, and, and yet is it does this kind of mark uh, sort of its bursting on the scene, if you will? 
Generally, this is the the place and the time that it is dated to, Los Angeles, 1906. The chapter talks a little bit about antecedents. There were other revivals in um, the UK and in India that had some of the same characteristics before that, especially the um, characteristic of speaking in tongues that is strongly associated with Pentecostalism. But generally, historians of Pentecostalism look to Azusa Street, this this one um, several weeks long event, revival, people um, locally participated in, people from across the country, across the world came to, people started there and went around the world. And so a lot of what we would think of as Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, healing, um, animated by the Holy Spirit, and some of these denominations like Foursquare or Assemblies of God or um, Kojic, things like that, um, really can trace their origins to that that one place in time. And the influence that it then had globally it's oh, amazing. Yeah, it, it's immense. If if you're looking at either identifiable denominations or practices and emphases, um, networks of now that we have more of a, a social media um, social media sphere, like who, what preachers are people listening to, streaming online, so you can have global networks operating on on multiple levels. Yeah, it's just it's just enormous. And other religious traditions, notably Roman Catholicism, also have strong inflections um, and and wings that could be described as as simultaneously Roman Catholic and Pentecostal. And the Scopes Monkey Trial. Um, and again, you you have thirteen of these turning points in your book. We're not able to touch on everyone, but the Scopes Monkey Trial. People are going to be at least familiar with that phrase. Nineteen twenty five. Tell us what happened and, and, and why it, it is so significant in American church history. So this was a, a legal trial of a high school science teacher. It was a, a test case um, testing a new law in Tennessee that was saying that you couldn't teach evolution. Um, it was a chosen test case. The city fathers wanted to bring attention to their town of Dayton, Tennessee, and boy, howdy, did they. Um, the ACLU also wanted to bring attention to this law limiting what could be said in an academic context. It ends up with this epic clash of two massive personalities, Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan. Um, they're arguing about biblical interpretation in a courtroom setting. It wasn't a room. The trial got too big. It was held outside and it was broadcast on the radio, which was very new technology. So just like everybody was talking about this and it pulls together a lot of ideas about science and religion, but also about small town versus big town um, and East Coast versus heartland America and, and who gets to determine what children are taught in school and what are going to be the the implications of that as they're being formed as citizens, all in the backdrop of this 1920s decade when there had been a lot of immigration and there were a lot of racial tensions and just all kinds of things getting snarled up. And it becomes this iconic battle interpreted differently um, by people coming from different perspectives. And not that it does, but but this was kind of the point where many um, put forward the idea that science and religion, science and Christianity somehow conflict or are incompatible. And of course, there's been that debate down to the present day. Yeah, that that wasn't a new idea, but it got ratcheted up and folded into a lot of what we would think of as ongoing culture wars right at this this period in time. And then coinciding with the civil rights movement, uh, 1963, that terrible uh, church bombing, that Baptist church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. Tell us about that. I mean, that's a a terrible tragedy, and yet you, you include it as a turning point in American church history. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring that chapter up. Um, I was not initially going to focus on the Birmingham church bombing that took the lives of four young Black girls. I was going to focus on um, March on Washington and I Have a Dream speech, the the more uplifting yeah. thing that was happening around the same time that I had been taught, you know, every Martin Luther King Day holiday, the students would recite that speech. But in between when I had started this book, which was actually many years ago, and when I was finishing it, um, George Floyd was murdered. And there was the summer of a lot of protests. And I realized how much violence was central to the story of civil rights and black history in America. And so I changed the focus of this chapter to be not on an uplifting speech, mm. but on an act of horrific violence, because I thought it was important to to focus on that and to see how it's not necessarily happy words that that take us forward. A lot of times it's something more shocking that causes um, not a quick turning point. <laughs> Nothing changes overnight if you're talking about civil rights, but a, a reframing, a refocus, um, new alliances, new willingness to change where um, previously there might have been an idea, well, the status quo is fine. We can keep talking about this, but we don't really, really need to do anything right now. Violence tends to uh, focus the attention. Mm. And then, uh, uh, fi well, finally, again, we haven't touched on everyone, but the, the 13th of these turning points in American church history, the, the book is How Pivotal Events, uh, the subtitle, How Pivotal Events Shaped a Nation and a Faith. Uh, the religion, religion Moves Right, Ronald Reagan Elected President, 1980. And, and I'm... Uh, not to take issue with the phraseology, but religion, I'm wondering, if is it is it religion that moved right, or was it actually, I mean, specifically Christianity that kind of moved right and moved political, but maybe they're synonymous? Um, yeah, that I probably chose that more for alliteration than for oh. <laughs> analytical power. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I do <clears throat> only talk about Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, mm -hmm. there. Um, Numbers-wise, um, other religious traditions in the United States are so small that they don't tend to be politically salient, not to say that they're not important. Um, the exception to that would be Judaism, um, which can be, and I could have probably said more about political alignments of American Jews in this chapter, but yep, you're right, you got me, this is mostly <laughs> Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it t tell us then, uh, something happened, I mean, it was, I mean, it was a turning point, actually, it was kind of a transition where, what, uh, American uh, conservative evangelicalism began to realize they, they had some sort of political influence or even power and, and to some to say to, the, to its detriment, but began to flex that muscle at that point of Ronald Reagan's election in 1980 going forward even. Yeah, and I think I would say that there's a, a couple reasons for that. There was um, polling, especially the, the Gallup Institution, identifying evangelicals as a constituency that could be counted. Um, that was 1976, actually, and then going forward. So that was part of then evangelical became a category that media figures would talk about, that politicians would talk about, that people would self-identify as, that maybe they had not done previously in the 20th century. But it was also around the time of the Republican Party's Southern strategy, um, after some of the civil rights legislation was signed, particularly by LBJ, a Democrat, um, particularly white Southern Christians who had been opposed to civil rights legislation, um, politically, they're up for grabs. They had they had voted solidly Democrat since the end of the Civil War because the Republicans were the um, Lincoln's party, the, the party of overturning slavery, the party of Reconstruction, uh, the party of, of letting 
Black Americans vote and be involved in politics. Um, the Republican Southern strategy around the time of Richard Nixon was white Southerners are no longer going to vote for Democrats because Democrats are in favor of civil rights. Let's go after them. Mm. And a lot of those white Southerners who had been very reluctant to uh, give up segregation were also evangelical. And so that political group coalesces at a time when you could say that its least savory elements are um, most prominent. Mm. There's a lot more to that, obviously, but our, our time has gone so quickly. And just kind of a footnote, what is unique about American church history? If there is something unique that might set it apart from the, the histories of, I mean, obviously there's so many countries, maybe that's not a fair question. I do think that um, you could write a similar book about French church history or South African church history or Chinese church history, the, the, the political context and the geographies and the... Um, ethnic and racial makeup of, of these places, um, they're, they're all going to matter. The United States, of course, has been such a major power over the last century. Um, so part of part of the American story is, is becoming a nation um, with its current borders and then becoming an extremely powerful and extremely wealthy nation. Um, we may not always be so powerful and wealthy. Um, there may be other countries that experience those aspects of their story before us or maybe after us. So unique in that we were rising in this place at that time, not unique in that a lot of these um, tensions and challenges could happen anywhere with a similar mix of money and power and influence. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Baylor University history professor, Dr. Alasha Kaufman, author of Turning Points in American Church History, How Pivotal Events Shaped a Nation and a Faith. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.